Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is a series where we are exploring topics related to autoimmune disease. The goal is to help patients and their loved ones understand and manage their condition. Today's episode will focus on lupus, also known as systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE. We welcome Dr. Sarah Sheikh, who is an assistant professor of medicine and directs the UNC Rheumatology Lupus Clinic. She also directs our clinical trials program for the UNC Thurston Arthritis Center. So Dr. Sheikh is both a rheumatologist and an allergist immunologist. One of her specialties is treating patients who have lupus. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. What is lupus? How do you best describe that? The word lupus is Latin for wolf. In the 18th century, when lupus was starting to be recognized as a disease, it was thought to be caused by the bite of a wolf. This may have been because of the distinctive facial rash characteristic of lupus that can often leave a bite-like imprint. Lupus is not a new disease. It is uh, believed to have been described by Hippocrates around 400 BC, and it is a chronic, complex autoimmune disease that can affect any part of the body from head to toe, including the skin, joints, organs inside the body, such as the kidneys, the heart, the liver, the lungs, the brain, and many others. As in other autoimmune diseases, in lupus, something goes wrong with the immune system, and it starts to attack itself. It produces proteins called autoantibodies that attack and destroy tissues of the body, healthy tissues. And this results in pain, inflammation, and damage to those tissues. It mostly strikes women in their childbearing years between the ages of 18 to 44, but men and women of all ages, including children and teenagers, can suffer from lupus. In addition, people of all races and ethnic groups can develop lupus. So there's a broad span of what a patient may feel who has lupus. Some people with much milder disease, some with life-threatening disease. How does a patient actually get a diagnosis of lupus? How does somebody know that they have it? In my opinion, no two lupus patients are alike. The process of uh, getting a lupus diagnosis typically begins with symptoms that a patient is experiencing that prompt the patient to seek medical attention. These symptoms could range from painful and swollen joints to unexplained fevers to unexplained weight loss and hair loss, swelling of lymph nodes, swelling of the legs, puffiness around the eyes, pink frothy urine that could indicate kidney damage, pain in the chest that occurs during deep breathing or movement, which indicates involvement of the heart or lungs, unusual sensitivity to the sun, sores in the nose or mouth, change in color of the extremities with exposure to the cold or stress called Raynaud's phenomenon, a history of blood clots, miscarriages, seizures, unexplained fatigue, and a host of other symptoms. There is no single test that is used definitively for the diagnosis of lupus. So it's typically a combination of clinical symptoms, physical examination, 
and specialized laboratory test, and sometimes the need for a biopsy of the skin or kidneys. Getting a positive blood test sometimes does not mean that you have a diagnosis of lupus. For example, the ANA test or the anti-nuclear antibody test is commonly used to detect autoantibodies that react against components of the nucleus or the body's command center of the cells. Most lupus patients have a positive ANA, but most patients with a positive ANA don't have lupus. So that means that that test is of some use, but if you have a positive ANA, that certainly does not mean that you have lupus. That is correct. Approximately 20% of normal, healthy individuals have a positive ANA. A positive ANA can also be seen in other diseases, such as thyroid disease, liver disease, and other autoimmune diseases. Or just an unexplained Absolutely. phenomenon. Absolutely. Patients don't necessarily have a constellation of findings or blood tests immediately on first visit. Uh, lupus is not one of those diseases that a person necessarily walks in and bingo, the disease is diagnosed. It can take a while. What do you tell those folks? Lupus has been called the great imitator because its symptoms can often mimic those of other diseases. And one of the things that's important to remember is that the symptoms can evolve over time. So the symptoms may not, as you pointed out, be evident at the very first visit, but they can evolve over time. So when I see patients in clinic, I tell them that the assessments that we perform are evaluations in time. So today, on this day of 2017, you may not, may or may not have a diagnosis of lupus, or you may have mild symptoms. But I cannot promise you that in 2018 or 2019, these symptoms won't evolve and you won't develop more complications. But what I can promise you is that I and other physicians are here to navigate the uncertainty. And in reality, some of those patients will have those symptoms go away. A, A lot of autoimmunity can resolve on its own. So you've described uh, lupus as the great imitator, Mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful uh, word choice because you've given us a list of possible symptoms that a patient with lupus may have. But in reality, it's an imitator of some other process. How do you help patients uh, navigate that uncertainty? The first important thing is to look for common causes of why patients have symptoms. Lupus and autoimmune diseases, while they are common, they are rare compared to general diseases that we see in the population. For example, as I mentioned, thyroid disease. So the first most important thing is to make sure that we rule out and we look for common diseases or common reasons why you may have these symptoms. In order to make a diagnosis of lupus, your doctor is looking very specifically for symptoms as well as laboratory evidence or tissue-specific evidence of inflammation. So you are then using the composite or integrating uh, capability of saying what you're feeling uh, could be due to lupus, let's try to confirm this, and see if, in fact, there's another explanation for what's going on. 
uh, lupus is common in your clinic, but not common in most primary care physicians' offices. So most of the time, it won't be a diagnosis of lupus. Absolutely. When patients do come to a rheumatology uh, office or uh, an office of somebody who takes care of patients with autoimmune disease, what do you want them to bring with them? What sort of information is useful? It's very helpful when patients write down the symptoms that they've been experiencing along with triggers of those symptoms. I always appreciate when patients either write down or bring in a list of medications or their medications with them to the visit, and also information about their family history, as well as any life changes potentially that could have triggered those symptoms. I think the first visit with a rheumatologist is really an opportunity for the patient to get to know the doctor and for your doctor to get to know you. So some of those triggers, for example, in, in patients who, who have lupus, that one of the triggers might be sunlight. In fact, at the end of the day, you tell everybody who, is, who has lupus that they need to wear a big floppy hat and <laughs> slather on as much sunscreen as, as they can. But if you don't know that and you're coming to see your rheumatologist for the first time, the possibility that when you go out in the sun you don't feel well or you break out into a rash won't immediately be associated in your mind as a patient as something that you should tell a, your doctor about. So it's those triggers or those uh, symptoms that you may have that you can't automatically put into a nice composite box, but in fact are things that you'd want them to write down and bring with them on, on their first visit. Absolutely. I think it's important to write down things that you're experiencing that may or may not be relevant in your mind for your doctor to know. But at that visit, we will work together to go through that list or the symptoms that you describe to help you make sense of them. In order to have a diagnosis of lupus, sometimes one needs to accumulate multiple criteria that are part of the American College of Rheumatology's criteria for a diagnosis of lupus. And it's useful then if patients have written down symptoms that, in fact, might be part of that checklist. Let's talk for a moment about medications that are used to treat mild disease and then maybe uh, some more uh, medications or approaches for therapy for uh, more aggressive disease. And there's a risk-benefit balance between all of those sorts of therapy. Let's talk about one of the most common early forms of therapy. It's called hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. That's a drug that uh, many people, many rheumatologists use in the early therapy for lupus. Let's start there. Hydroxychloroquine, or Plaquenil, is what we typically think of as an immunomodulatory drug. It works slowly at the molecular level to bring about changes in the immune system that help to treat the symptoms and then prevent complications of the disease. As you mentioned, it is very commonly used. It is a drug that's taken by mouth anywhere from once to twice a day. And it is typically well-tolerated. 
but patients who are prescribed Plaquenil and are on therapy with Plaquenil are required to have their vision checked on a regular basis because the risk of toxicity from this medication can increase over time when patients are on this therapy. But then there are a variety of other kinds of medications that are also used from glucocorticoids or steroids to other kinds of immunosuppressive drugs. How do you figure out that balance between a drug that's causing a, having a benefit versus a drug that may be uh, too risky? Because these are potent therapies with side effects, our goal is always to use the least amount of medication possible to achieve the desired benefit. But sometimes the inflammation is so active that in order to get it under control, we have to use these potent therapies. You ask, how do we balance the risk and benefits? Well, one, when we're using these therapies, we have to closely monitor patients with regular visits to our clinic, as well as laboratory uh, data and obtaining that on a regular basis so that we're checking blood counts, liver, and kidney function to make sure that we are identifying any toxicity if it occurs and preventing any from occurring. What can a patient do or the patient's family do to uh, decrease or mitigate some of the risks? And the risks are infection. Uh, of when you start suppressing the immune system, your chances of having even garden variety kinds of infections, not alone more serious ones, goes up. Uh, what can the patient do and what can the family do to help here? We know that patients with autoimmune diseases in general and lupus in particular are at increased risks of infection. I recommend talking to your doctor to make sure that you're up to date on any immunizations that are appropriate for you before beginning immunosuppressive therapy. N pneumonia shots, pneumovax, in other words, uh, influenza vaccines. Shingles, shingles vaccine. vaccine. All of those. As a matter of fact, you have to take the current shingles vaccine, which is a live vaccine, before you start immunosuppressive therapy. Absolutely. A lot of these uh, vaccines need to be administered before starting immunosuppressive therapy, but then other vaccines, such as the influenza vaccine and the pneumonia vaccine, can be administered even when you are on immunosuppressive therapy. So that's important to remember. And wash your hands and wash your hands and have everybody in the family wash their hands over and over and over again. Right. And when you're on immunosuppressive therapy, I think taking things a little bit more seriously than you would have otherwise, or being a little bit more vigilant of your symptoms and communicating them to your doctor is important. So if you don't feel good, it's important to let your doctor know. It's also important, I guess, for the family to realize that if a person is coming into the house or if one's out and about and the family member sees that a patient, a, another person walking around has a hacking cough or clearly is infected, it's good to steer the patient away from that potential source of, of, a, of a bug. And it's good for pa people to be able to say some distance uh, is really a good idea. Yes, I think family members and caregivers are partners in this. So to be vigilant using all the things that you mentioned is, is important. Because of the numerous potential, not necessary, but potential places that lupus may attack, 
What other kinds of specialists are important in the multidisciplinary care of such a patient? Diagnosing and managing lupus often requires a team approach between the patient and multiple healthcare professionals. So depending on the organ system that's involved, this could be a partnership that involves multiple subspecialists with the primary care provider. So rheumatologists who are doctors that specialize in uh, bones, joints, and the immune system, nephrologists or doctors that specialize in kidney disease, hematologists who specialize in blood disorders, uh, hepatologists who specialize in liver disorders, and a host of other subspecialists can be involved in addition to nurses, social workers, therapists, psychologists, physical and occupational therapists, and others. So it's really important that you mentioned that other group of very important healthcare professionals that complement the care of a patient with lupus. It's for one thing to send a person to see a kidney doctor uh, and they may take care of that individual's kidney disease and that portion of the disease that lupus is, where lupus is affecting the kidney. But I would suggest that almost everybody with an autoimmune disease uh, has uh, difficulty or at times struggles with trying to adapt to a disease that may come and go and come and go for which they're on uh, these immunosuppressive drugs. And being able to talk with trained professionals, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, or other people whom one has a good relationship with, I think is also very much part of care. Absolutely. I feel that lupus doesn't just affect the body. We've seen how lupus damages a patient's sense of self, whether it's from disfiguring skin disease or from the inability to get out of bed in the morning. I think it's heartbreaking. My patients are often scared. They're fearful for themselves and for their families. They're fearful of the unknown. They're angry sometimes and frustrated all of which are emotions that come with learning to cope with a chronic illness. I feel that our role is to help caregivers and patients through this and to help them move from merely surviving lupus to thriving with lupus. How do you help a patient understand the relapsing and remitting nature of the disease? So the disease goes is under control, it's in remission, the patient feels good. But in the back of the mind, there's always a concern, whoops, this may come roaring back. And so there's this sense of almost hypervigilance to see if any new sign or symptom may or may not be part of this process. That can be difficult to, to try to figure out by oneself as a patient. When should one get back in touch with one's physician when one thinks that one may be flaring, but one's not sure? I think maintaining good communication with your doctor is key. Something that I recommend for lupus patients is not just to see your doctor when you're having a flare or when you don't feel good, but the importance of regular visits so that you and your doctor can discuss these concerns as they arise and for regular monitoring of blood work and urine tests and labs so that we can pick up on these uh, before you actually have a flare. 
That's really an important concept. It's important to go see your doctor when you're well because otherwise a physician may only see you when you're sick and think you're constantly sick. Whereas if you come when you are also well, it provides a much more balanced, uh, a much more balanced view. Let's talk about some of the other lifestyle changes that your patients describe to you. What other sorts of things, lifestyle changes, uh, are useful and uh, what may not be as useful? Maintaining a healthy lifestyle and making healthy lifestyle choices is important, such as eating well, getting enough sleep, exercising regularly, not smoking. I think these basic healthy lifestyle choices are key in managing your disease. So the big bugaboo of many autoimmune diseases, is not just lupus, is this sense of overwhelming fatigue. I describe it as an animal fatigue. You feel like you need to fall asleep and you can sleep anywhere. And if you don't go to sleep, it's, you, you, you can't move. That's a sense of fatigue that is overwhelming. What do you tell patients with respect to handling those moments? I agree. I think the fatigue often is a vicious cycle. So that while it's important to exercise regularly, sometimes you may feel so tired that you can't exercise or you can't even get out of bed. I tell patients to take baby steps, to take it a day at a time. It's also important to remember that some symptoms like fatigue are incredibly difficult to treat and don't respond to traditional immunosuppressive therapy, and that's a challenge. During a flare, I think it's really important to listen to your body, to rest, to ask for help, and to communicate with your doctor. Any other words of hope for patients? Due to better understanding of lupus, the prognosis for patients with lupus today is much brighter than it has been in the past. As we all work together to unravel the mysteries of lupus, I feel that there is continued hope for development of more targeted, less toxic therapeutic options that have the potential to help patients and potentially, ultimately, someday, uh, prevent or cure the disease. A far cry from the era where people thought that lupus was caused by a wolf bite. Where are some trustworthy sources, resources that patients can turn to uh, that are dependable and that you would suggest that they look at? The Lupus Foundation of America, both the national organization as well as the North Carolina chapter, are an excellent resource, as are the UNC Thurston Arthritis Center and the UNC Kidney Center. Uh, A lot of information is available on the websites. Thank you, Dr. Sheik, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this series, you can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Stay tuned for our next episode, and thanks.